Got accent, the positive, healing. Money ain't the negative, and latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In Between. To illustrate my last remark, Jonah and the whale, Noah and the ark. What did they do just when everything looked so dark? Man, they said we better accent. Shoot the negative, dealing. Money the negative, and latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In Between. No, don't mess with Mr. In Between. It took a while. I had to do two songs because I'm having a hard time logging in. But I think I'm finally here. Ah, there it is. Ah, all right, guys, gals. How y'all doing? Uh, we just recorded another ep of Chapo where we just had to had to come to the conclusion that Joe Biden is is based. Joe Biden is the most base president uh, of the 21st century, uh, maybe since uh, JFK, maybe. Uh, a, a based, a, no, I'm sorry, Nixon, certainly since Nixon. Nixon was pretty based. That's why uh, he got fucking owned. Because uh, it does really does seem to, it looks to me, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's another level to this that I am failing to perceive, and it could be there. But it really does seem like this Afghanistan withdrawal was done in the teeth of the resistance of the entire national security state and against the interests of the military complex, like the fucking uh, intelligence networks that depend on Taliban heroin to circulate their uh, black market uh, budgets. Defense contractors, the media, uh, the entire political class of both parties, all dedicated to keeping up the fantasy of imperial uh, dominion. The idea that we are uh, able to exert a hegemonic power in other places. Something that has has undergirded the entire war on terror national defense logic. And he just said, no. Because he is the president, and the president does have the power to do that. They don't do that because they're constrained by other factors, mainly their own egos and their connections to the system, and their fear of, and their uh, very narrow sight, narrow minded, uh, and craven fear of consequences. Fear of in Obama's uh, mind being seen as weak, and Trump being seen as a loser. But like Biden's power here is is allowed by two things, and that and that's why it cannot be generalized. And you can't take oh Biden can do this, therefore he can do that or will do that. Is that his power is uh, in this in every case delimited by two things? Uh, Uh, their foreign, their ability to exert power in the face of public opinion and structural constraint within the government. And in every most, most domestic questions, the president does have to deal with a, a matrix of interests. Uh, in, in carrying off foreign policy, the president is really able to go by what they want to do. 
But what they're constrained by is how it will be perceived and how they imagine it will make them be perceived. And also the undergirding notions of like American prestige and stuff that these guys really do believe in. And those constraints are supposed to be the thing that prevent them from exercising their theoretical power, regardless of what their uh, beliefs are. Like Obama, I think, probably did want to end the war in Afghanistan in, an, in a vacuum. Obama imagining himself as he does as a creature of a legacy, a ego monster who only cares about, uh, about being remembered, basically, and being accepted by a power structure by embodying it in its most uh, perfected liberal form. That's all he cared about. And so – David Brooks could prevent him from doing what he maybe thought he should do by telling him, uh, you know what, you're going to look like you lack determination. And it was Biden in the room in, 20, uh, in 2009 saying, don't listen to these generals when they tell you they need 40,000 more people. You need to cut out. They will never, ever have enough troops. It'll never end. And Obama, because he cared so much about how he was perceived, said, okay, what about 20,000 and let us down the road to this endlessly, needlessly or horrible butchery. You can chalk Obama. Now that we know that you can withdraw from Afghanistan, it means that Obama's decision not to is up there with all of his greatest crimes. In fact, it might be his greatest crime. Uh, it's certainly up there with his failure to, um, to uh, bail out the homeowners basically and to, and to uh, carry off the uh, the uh, the finance coup, basically of of recapitalizing the private sector publicly uh, after the collapse. So that's domestically his his greatest crime. But refusing to wrap that thing up, and it was in his interest to wrap it up, but he was afraid of how people who buy are all committed to the imperial project, not the American people or the voters, the people who are at that point dedicated to this imperial project. Uh, they were all in unison. You will look bad if you do this. We will not like you if you do this. We will be say bad things about you. And for Obama, that was as much a constraint as uh, a, a actual letter of the law that uh, he had to carry out that, you know, had to be in accordance with democratic control or uh, legislature. You know, like as though he were actually constrained in the exercise of his power. He was restrained by his need for these people's approval. And of course, Trump, of course, the exact same only inverted sense of uh, of insecurity being powering, powering him, that same desire to be loved and accepted. Uh, and if the right people who he cared about their opinions of told him that he looked like a loser, he couldn't do anything. Biden genuinely didn't fucking care about what people thought of him. He genuinely doesn't care about what people think of him on this axis. And that is where baseness, if that means anything, comes from. That's the only true uh, freedom is when you are free of self-imposed uh, restraints based on other people's expectations. Because then you are a hostage to power. You will never exercise real power. You will find a reason, oh, it's the smart thing to stay in Afghanistan forever. It's the smart thing to absolutely uh, um, arbitrarily splitting the difference between getting out of Afghanistan and giving the amount of troops that the generals tell you they need, which is a totally incoherent uh, policy. Instead of like confronting the reality of the occupation and ending it, He couldn't do it. He, he made that choice because it was, it was the one that would be acceptable to opinion. The scene of leaving Kabul and uh, that we saw, if that had happened on his watch, it would have just, he would have been the, the thought of that, the thought of the, this moment actually that we're living through with Biden is the thing that prevented Obama from getting out of Afghanistan. He imagined this happening. And he imagined a, in a world where this happens is for Obama inconceivable. 
And the very prospect of it is what limited his actions. And that happened with his entire presidency. He would, he would instinctively pull back beyond the range of even risking the approbation of the fucking hive mind that he worshipped. And that means that he was never going to get close to a, 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 any meaningful uh, action on anything, which is what his presidency looked like. And the thing about Biden is, is that he believes in some things very deeply, that he was right in 2009 and that he wants to affirm his correctness. Also, that um, that uh, the only way to make real uh, progress in Washington domestically is with bipartisanship. Like he believes in a bipartisanship and getting the people together in the room and 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 obeying Senate procedures as deeply as he believed we needed to get out of Afghanistan. And he's as committed to carrying that out in the face of destruction as he is uh, uh, get out of Afghanistan. He doesn't, he at the end of the day doesn't care what people think about the Afghanistan pullout. He doesn't care about the consequences because he's already there. He's president. He's going to die. I really don't think he doesn't care about getting reelected. I don't think he thinks that far ahead. He's there. It doesn't matter. So he doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about electoral consequences for Democrats. And he's willing to to suffer those slings to do the greater good, which in his mind is getting out of Afghanistan. Now, we might agree with him on that point for different reasons, perhaps, maybe not so ego-drenched as his, but we agree with him on that point. But that's just personal, arbitrary, you know, alliance of opinion. Because he is a creature of the Senate, because he is, is a fucking a manifestation of the corrupt party structure of one of the two purchased machines of bourgeois rule. Like that is what the democratic and Republican parties are. They are armatures of dictatorship. They are the, the, the bureaus by which the, the bureau, the bourgeois uh, exert its will on a population. Their will is ratified through these machines and Biden not coming from the money end of it, or, or from the liberal uh, goody two-shoes reform part of it, but from the depths of the machine itself, the, the, the fucking back-slapping, fist-pumping, Richard Daly mid-century tradition that has been squoes, squoes, I keep saying squoes, that has been sort of pressed out of the party over the years by the domination of the professional classes, the, the Obamas. The old political class is really dying, and Biden is the last gasp of it. It's the, he's the husk of the party that was thrown up to, to keep Bernie at bay. He was the closest thing there. He was the same way Humphrey was used to, to ward off um, uh, Kennedy in 68. And that means that now he is just a husk filled with that, filled with that life, filled with those uh, – the job he did all those years, which was in the Senate mostly. And so that gives him a few things that he really believes in and he's going to do them no matter what it means. That means no student debt relief. That means no legalized marijuana on the federal level. That means no real effort to abolish the filibuster in the Senate uh, or to uh, push against uh, like conservative democratic resistance to to his agenda whatever he says it is he believes in that and he's going to see it through and he ha- and there is no way to press him there is no way to dissuade him because just like in Afghanistan he doesn't care he has no long-term investment in the project and that is what happens at the end of a machine at the end of the machine, when it, when it, when a mechanism of power is exhausted of any life and value and principle and spirit, all that's left is the fucking machine itself. And it will then become embodied in the people who run it, which is the end stage of any empire is the inbred desiccated aristocracy. And, uh, Joe Biden is our latter day Habsburg as is Trump. Just different faces of it, the, the different parties, rather. 
And so Biden is like the remaining microwaved fucking uh, beef jerky ass id of the mid-century Democrats, which is uh, cut and run when, it's, when it, you can uh, overseas after getting in way over your head uh, in the first place uh, and then domestically making deals. And so that's what we're going to get from him domestically and internationally. Wherever his brain has been fixed by being the embodiment of the Democratic Party in the Senate for those years is what we're going to get. And we don't have any way to intervene in it because these these buttons don't connect anything. And all this is the important part. All of the very important questions, the things that are not negotiable, the things that determine the capital real hell we're in are not within his grasp. He cannot do anything by himself to actually challenge the prerogatives of capitalism. He can only mess with a lower tier of orders. And he can genuinely undermine the structures that allow capitalism to exist, but only accidentally and is the product of his proximing dying mind. That is why the only way that uh, revolution, meaningful revolution occurs in this, ca- this context, this context of liberalism, where we are liberal subjects, is one where a class asserts power and, it, and extends its, uh, its will through democratic means into power structures instead of the situation we have now where the bourgeois actually runs all of the meaningful questions outside of democratic control. And then what we get is a Potemkin politics around the, most, the least consequential questions. And that means that our politics become a spectacle, of course, but, you know, that spectacle it is imbued with the fact that it does hold people's, uh, individual people's destiny in its hands. And so we do invest in it, but we cannot actually grasp at power. And so we can send working class people to politics. We have sent working class people to politics. We have voted for working class parties uh, in the in Europe, and here we have voted as members of the working class for parties that include the working class as a, as a self conscious uh, uh, interest group. But we're still, and that's the closest we come to class consciousness under capitalism. But for the most part, we do not uh, engage in politics directly enough to do it as workers because we're just voting. It's just a ritual. It's a consumer identity. It does not adhere uh, meaning and commitment to it and revolutionary elan and ability to exercise power instead of seed power to some structure that will do it. We don't have those. We only have people. The people have to make the structures. But then if you have that, if you've created a working class political machinery, that can express power coherently. And of course, this is the reason that the Bolsheviks are the example, par example of this, is because they are historically <coughs> the, 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 the test case of this emerging. Is that then you still have government being made up of a bunch of people with individual idiosyncrasies and individual impressions and individual identities and, and, and collections of identities, just like you have in government now. But through a actually uh, through a self-conscious working class movement, all of those people are orienting those individual personalities around an access, a heuristic access of worker power, their identity being wired through it, their identity being fused to a notion of of uh, of a <clears throat> a self conscious worker. When you're not just a uh, worker is not with a lowercase; it's with a uppercase, and that means that even though we're all a bunch of individuals with our own weird grooved heads and our weird opinions, that shared identity reinforced through daily struggle and action 
sharpens our perceptions towards the right thing to do and allows us to democratically control the levers of power. Like, I think that we have so identified democracy with voting in, in this country. When we think democracy, we really do think getting into a booth and voting and then watching what happens, investing emotions into what happens, but being inert. Now, we don't feel inert. We feel very political. We feel like we're highly politicized people. We feel like politics is deeply embedded in our identity. But in reality, that's just our fandom. Our actual political identity is a willingness to go somewhere every two or four years and fucking pull a lever. And so our willingness to actually assert our political identity is commensurately weak because it's about pleasure. It's about having fun. It's about getting off. It is not about fighting for a future. It is not about uh, asserting your will in the universe against a machine that seems dedicated to stripping you of any sense of control over anything, which is our humanity. Our humanity is defined by our ability to, in, in, to change our environment by our will. That's what separates a human from any other animal. And it is being stripped of us. And we feel that. And so we want to fight against it. But if that fighting against it is caring about it a lot in an abstract way that distracts us from the fact that all we're really doing is what they tell us to plus voting. Democracy means actually asserting as an human your control over your identity or your control over your world. You are you are asserting your humanity. And when you and you everybody tries to assert their humanity all the time and it is mostly wasted. It is mostly splashed meaninglessly onto the pavement if it is not coordinated because we're going against as individuals a system that thrives on our struggle as individuals. The only thing that resists the tide is is the uh coordinated efforts of people. Because the individual-aided efforts are driven by a desire to indulge, by a desire to distract from the real issue, the real vital crisis in our hearts, which is our lack of a sense of control, a lack of a sense of humanity. Alienation, dehumanization. And if we felt that, we would have to redefine what politics was to us. And if we were going to assert our humanity, it would require doing something more than voting. Now, the reason we don't is not just because we're having fun in the treat box. It's because everything we see in the treat box looks pointless because it's designed to. Every real-world phenomenon that we encounter, when we encounter it in the uh, matrix, basically, when we put our head into the soup bowl to, to share in the common social uh, media generated fantasy of the world that everybody else is encountering uh, IRL. It is through a veil of self-interest because everyone we're seeing, everyone we're seeing in every story that we encounter about what's going on in the world around us is operating as self-interested homo economicus alienated consumers. Because that is the only acts that are encouraged in this environment. That's the only way of being that is rewarded. And we're here to be rewarded. And so we do that. We encounter real things and we, we express our humanity. But what, we, what we're putting out there is not what people are absorbing. What we're putting out there is what we're all coming back. What's coming back to us is the earnest expression of humanity drained of any of the earnestness that can be felt. It's drained into the ether because we're, we're, we're not feeling it. We're just coldly receiving it. 
But everybody has to live in there in that in the soup bowl because it's part of our humanity. We are cyborgs now. Psychologically, we are cyborgs. In that a crucial chunk of our brains, like meaningful to our sense of navigating the world from like a, a fixed ego perspective, however you want to you define like what your brain does, is not in your brain. It is on a fucking uh, server. That is a cyborg. Your brain is on a server. My brain is on a server. Not all of it, but a chunk of it. A chunk that in a pre-internet era, in a pre-mass media era, would be in my brain. It would be inside of me. And the, the dream of the singularity is just the dream of pull, taking that process and completing it. I'm saying, yes, some of your brain is on the internet. Let's take it all there. Let's leave everything else outside, all of that flesh, all of that life, all of the stuff that gives any of that data, those memories, those takes, meaning, stripping it literally of meaning and putting us into an algorithm of uh, social, uh, of, of, of biological destruction. Now, of course, the dream is to hit that middle area I was talking about where the opening of possibility exists where we can master technology. And then we base, we become like RoboCop where there is a flesh, there is a humanity that is bound by connections to other people in the real world. But we also have a cybernetic shared world that we all live in. And that we express that connection to each other that we feel in the real world through the mechanisms of that cyber reality that we share. Instead of letting capitalism define us at our worst. And in the in the cyber realm, we can imagine that the, that we're, there can still be free real estate, and that there can still be a frontier that we can strive towards. And that's what we're all doing. We're all striving through that frontier, and we're all doomed. And I, as long as we stay there, like there's this big argument about the left, right? Post Bernie about what is the left? Is the left just the Democratic Party now? Is the left just upholding the social revolution of the Democrats because? They've given up cynically on the, the revolution uh, uh, of means of production. And people argue about that. And it, it, you watch it and there's this passionate bifurcation of people trying to say, no, the left is something different than the Democratic Party. It's distinct. It's the socialist tradition. It's, it's, it's these forces and these ideas. And it's very frustrating to observe because – these are both correct descriptions of reality, but different parts of reality. Like the people who want to defend the idea of a left that is not just cynical, uh, not just a, a woke uh, laundry of the Democratic Party, they are invoking a real tradition that we all part of. We are all part of that we all believe we're part of. Like I really do think that's true. Now, that doesn't mean everybody who considers themselves a leftist isn't essentially a liberal. I mean, I would say a large chunk of them are not, not, I mean, obviously I'm saying we're all liberals, but I mean, in the sense that they don't know enough to know that what they want is liberalism, which is different than liberal subjects who are trying to like embody socialism in the public sphere to, you know, engage a new paradigm of sociality that emerges from working class experience. You're not trying to do that. You're trying to do liberalism, but good. What if we could have capitalism and all of its hierarchies, but I could feel good about it? Like There are many people who believe themselves adherents to socialism who actually want that. They would describe that to you as socialism, but it would be incorrect. But there are people who genuinely do 
either want socialism in that they believe in it earnestly, even if they don't know what it means, or do know what it means and are trying to get it. And so in that respect, to, to say that the left is the same as liberal uh, – as uh, – the left is the same as the Democrats is absurd and silly. And uh, honestly, if it's true, it really does foreclose all politics. And it's like, well, what are you talking about? Because there's nothing outside of the left. I'm sorry. Like The idea that there's a right populism that is somehow able to uh, challenge capitalism without using class as its foundational uh, organizing principle, at least uh, it's, if it's if we're all going to be identity shit forever, then that identity make that into an identity, forge that identity. Don't just fall back on the lazy national racial categories that only exist within capitalism and only exist to bolster capitalism and defend it in its end stages from class consciousness. It is the antibodies of capitalism kicking in and a crisis moment for Christ's sake. How do you not see that? So that is why it's so frustrating to see that take, but. At another point, though, at another level of analysis, that argument that the de- the left is just the Democrats is true in so much that the actual terms of our uh, political discussion are not made by the left because we live in a capitalist-dominated media landscape where whatever we think uh, might be, you know, Socialism or whatever is being generated by capitalist institutions for capitalist ends. And we are engaging in politics through this media sphere because it's all we have. We are broken up. We don't, we don't live the way that people used to live when class could be lived. Like they made it so that's hard to do. And, cy- and the cyber realm makes that even harder. So we don't live that way. We don't live. With a class consciousness. So we can only engage. We can only live our lives and create our identities about politics the same way everyone else does, by voting and then paying attention. Now, our paying attention is more intense because we're posting. We're listening to things that are specifically political. We're engaging in arguments online that are specifically political. We are uh, joining groups to do to come together to discuss issues that are specifically political. We are political. And it's like, yes, but all those people are reacting to a political reality that is made by two political parties, the Democrats and Republicans. They are the ones who actually enact in day-to-day the political ritual of consensus that uh, is skinned on top of capitalism. And so for the vast majority of people, most of whom do not think of themselves as left-wing in any meaningful sense and have no class critique of anything or class awareness of anything, they are engaging in politics trying to understand why things are the way they are, what's going on, They look to what the parties are doing in Washington and at their state level also because that is to them politics because it's what they're taught is politics and nothing in their life will overcome that. There's no countercurrent of class uh, mobilization to do that. So all they do is care about it, pay attention to it, and engage in the same argument as everybody else. And what that means is is that the left – when picking what we're going to talk about for the day is limited to engaging in the same issues and on the same points of meaningful uh, passion that animate the culture war around this politics where we actually do the only thing we have that actually invests our politics with emotion. Forget about the dry questions of class control, the stuff that gives our lives emotional, these, these, uh, questions emotional texture is the narrative around them and the narrative around them is made by the two parties and so the radical the the left is tailing the democratic party and can only ever respond to an agenda set by the democrats and that does limit their ability to coordinate to articulate 
a class-based politics because the Democrats are a bourgeois party. The reason hearing people make that point is very frustrating is that if you accept that as true, and I think it is, it means that the Republican Party is the exact same mirror image. And any kind of radical Republicans that you want to imagine, any Nazbols, any fucking uh, uh, based nationalists, any Carlsonites who you think are going to lead some sort of uh, national social revolt that tricks capitalism into overturning itself from within the fucking bourgeois party, you are delusional. Those people are trailing the Republican Party, which is dominated just as thoroughly at the top by capital as the Democrats are, in the exact same way the left does. And so you are as sterilely engaging as the left is. But what that means is that they're not sheep-dipping anybody. They're not in charge of mystifying the world. They have no choice. The thing to draw from this is not, I need to post harder, which is what all these idiots get out of that. It's that I need to post much less hard. Keep posting? Sure, I'm a human. I'm a human-animal hybrid now, or I'm a human cyborg now. I got to post. To post is to live. I have to assert myself somehow because there's precious other places elsewhere I can do it. But I got, I need to find somewhere else to assert myself. I need to assert my humanity elsewhere because this is a lotus field. And if I just start eating, I will never stop. And Or I have been eating and I need to stop. To post is human. That was not a White Lotus reference. That was a fucking, a fucking Odyssey reference. White Lotus is a reference to that. Also, there's a poem. I mean, the fact that that thing's from fucking, you know, ancient Greece should tell you that this issue has been around for a while. And that's why you have to ask yourself, what is this posting that I do, the specific posting that I do, what is it doing for me? What does this posting do for me? What soul nourishment does it provide for me? Is this shit a Big Mac or is this shit an acai smoothie? Are you talking about Giamatti when you're talking about a uh, – somebody says you got to frame your posters. Sir, there's a frame on Giamatti. That is a Friedland original, yes. I'm very, very proud – very proud to own it. He got uh, one for me. Yeah. Why are people talking about Robin at Robert Evans? Maybe you better believe it. Isn't that what he says? Something like that. That seemed like that guy was a meme like a decade ago. Man, he was out of this world. Like, there was so much Robert Evans shit. 
And I do really wonder for the like for the flyovers, did anyone know or care about anything? Because not first there was in the nineties, he was a cult figure in Hollywood because he wrote that epic biography, Kid Stays in the Picture. And I remember one of the first Robert Evans things I ever saw was Bob Odenkirk doing an impression of Robert Evans as God on Mr. Show. But then by the early aughts, they made an, I think they made, what happened is they, there was a, a documentary based on the book that came out. And then he just became the biggest meme on earth. Yeah, there was a, a Robert, there was a Patton Oswalt bit. And then there was ended up being a fucking cartoon. Oh, are you guys talking about that fucking Bell and Cat dipshit? That's very funny. <laughs> He's gonna have to work pretty hard to get uh to get uh that name to himself. Good luck, man. Because for me, that's gonna be a tough one. These kids today, the Zoomers, don't know who the original Robert Evans is. So I guess you're good since you're this. You know, he's a He's a podcaster, so he's got a younger audience. He doesn't have to worry about old fucks like me thinking about uh, the guy who produced The Godfather. That makes more sense. It's a more contemporary reference, but it tells you where I am, man. I, I am, I'm, I'm back before the towers fell. Why wouldn't I want to stay there? Why wouldn't I want to stay back before the towers fell? When we thought the future was just going to be uh, like slowly curdling your insides like Hotel California, and you could feel genuine angst about that, even though it was not tinged with any real fear. Now, just a, 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 ha- a dying hamster in a cage. So, yeah, I'm not thinking about some fucking podcast, dude. I don't know much about that guy. I know he's one of those guys who says lock up all the uh, MAGA people and anybody who's on that, anybody who's on the January 6th Antifa tip, I'm sorry. At this point, you are doing the job uh, that the FBI agents who fucking frame half of these assholes are also doing. You're approaching it from the other side. You're doing the pinchers movement. And, of course, he might not be CIA. I don't know, but he fucking does the job. Yeah, the thing about guys like that is, like, I highly doubt that they're agents. Like, they're fucking fail sons. Like, I know. I mean, people have accused my show of being filled with uh, CIA agents and that I'm a CIA agent. I mean, I know there's no reason for you to believe me, but trust me, having spent any, if you spent any time with these people, you would immediately know that there's no fucking way any of us are active agents. Absolute, they would not entrust anything, any kind of uh, secrecy or tradecraft to schmucks like us. Is that if you have enough agency money just floating around, it will adhere to people who are going to do your bidding and the whole time think they're doing the right thing. And hell, maybe that's me. No idea. No, no way of knowing. I'm just going to assume not. Because why not? I'm going to assume so. I'm sorry. If I assume so, then I'm going to be fucking Gene Hackman in my house, stripped to the fucking baseboards, playing saxophone at the end of the conversation. Can't do it. Have to assume I'm not. The only thing about the the only thing about current affairs I feel like I want to say publicly because obviously I have opinions but I try now I've made a concerted effort to avoid any kind of drama shit in these things because I really do think it's it it undermines my fucking entire project because it is exactly the type of high fructose corn syrup that just wires you and it's why people want to talk about it. And it's why I have, have opinions anyway. I don't need to have opinions about this stuff. But yeah, it's very much uh, it's very much cookies for dinner. But there's one thing I think. There's one thing that was associated with this that struck me as worth pointing out. 
So Current Affairs is headquartered in New Orleans, right? After the whole contrapont occurred, the New Orleans DSA put out a statement in solidarity with the fired staff. And I don't know if any of you guys know what New Orleans is like in terms of uh, how the people there are doing generally. Like how it's how its civic fabric has been holding up for the past, I don't know, 20 years now. You know, ever since it got leveled by a fucking uh, hurricane and then never really rebuilt. Uh, and the entire uh, public school system gutted and turned into charters. And uh, a huge population decline. And then a massive gentrification program. that sees the original population sort of driven out. If this is what you are putting out statements about, you are showing a certain uh, priority. You, you, It shows that to you what socialism is, what the socialist project is, what a socialist organization in a city should be doing. You have ideas about those that I think are filtered through a prism not of everyday experience, but of theatricality. That's all I'm going to say. It does not indicate uh, well-oriented priorities on the part of the left. Which is why the only true answer to any of these questions about as the left, a part of the Democrats is to say it doesn't exist. It is a consumer identity among others. I helped create it. That's not what I thought I was doing, but it is clearly what I did. I was not the only one who did it. It would have happened if I wasn't here, which is how capitalism works because responsibility is never really incarnated in an individual. But I absolutely was instrumental as a person in being one of the bodies that filled the space that made this subculture, this identity. Now, the fact that this identity exists means it could be put to good use. The Bernie campaign, I think, was a good use of that new consumer identity. It failed in its task showing the limitedness of this approach but it also showed that, uh, <clears throat> but by showing the limitedness of the approach, it doesn't mean, okay, now all you people who have this identity, now just forget about it. Forget about this identity or get a new one. That's stupid. They have it. It activates them. It makes them do one thing instead of another. It makes them not just vote one way or another, but join one organization instead of another. It makes them donate money to one thing or another. It actually points them in the same direction. But who's doing the pointing? That's the question. Who is doing the pointing? And right now, the pointing is being done by capital in the form of the two-party circus that we are all hostage to. The hope, though, is that the the thing-ding, the pointing, could be an actual working-class movement. It would not see itself through a class lens, but it would be composed of people activating uh, operating not out of uh, allegiance to any of the symbolic orders embodied in by the Democrats or the Republicans. It would, that would, it's like, by the sign you shall know it. It's like you don't have to worry about, oh, well, how am I going to tell when it's coming? How can I see what it is? I, want, I don't want to get tricked into, into joining some uh, fascist movement. It's very simple. If it's embodying the language of the moment and the politics of the moment, it is part of that structure if it is embodying priorities that are not set by the parties, priorities around labor, the kind of things you don't see them argue about, then the things that they will, that will emerge from that, the structures of power, the structures of cultural production that are going to emerge from that, the counter-hegemonic structures that are going to emerge from that are not going to be filtered through the lens of the two-party culture war. 
And those people in the middle, those people who have been following the finger are going to get a chance to redirect themselves and redirect their energy. Not all of them are going to take it. Some of them are going to do it uh, under false pretenses and in bad faith, but the majority are going to do it out of good faith because the majority of people are of good faith. If you give them a chance and even if they aren't, they're still the tail. So even if the majority of those, uh, those middle-class busybodies who don't really think of themselves as workers were to adhere to this movement, even if they were by and large of bad faith, their bad faith would be destroyed. And because they are unable to act, uh, to operate independently, they would, they would be annihilated in, they would no longer pose a threat. And there would still be more of us in the broad sense of the exploited American than there were of them in raw numbers and the possibility of building social, political, religious structures that extend outward horizontally and then are able to assert power vertically is a real possibility. It's all we can hope for and it's all we can work towards. Like that's why fascism, I think, is a is a bad way to frame the moment, and it is a counterproductive mechanism for thinking about things, talking about things, engaging in politics. Because if you are committed to fighting fascism, you are committed to the project of the Democratic Party. Because the embodiment of this fascist uh, revolution is the Republican Party. The way it's threatening for power is to grasp the mechanisms of government democratically. That means the only way to resist them meaningfully. Yeah, you can punch Nazis in the streets, but that is just letting off steam, basically. That's just a way to ritualize your politics and, and exert them in a way that is outside of meaningful political channels. At the end of the day, you got to come back and vote for Democrats. And that means that if some working-class political structure emerges that is able to challenge for power at the ballot box, you are obligated to vote against them because they might cost you spots. You might, they might cost you races that then would go to the fascists. What I want to know is what anyone thinks the benefit to the, to the system, to the perpetuation of capitalism, would be of annihilating a very effective mechanism of consent manufacture and coercion uh, laundering that we currently have. The only conditions under which that would happen, that, that the forms of democracy would be shattered, would be a condition of total economic collapse. And at that point, who do you care who's in office? Now, the only argument I've, heard, I've seen against that is to say, well, no, we'll have all the forms of democracy, but they will be controlled by these uh, machines outside of uh, demo- democratic input. And to that I say, how is that different than now? You're just talking about matters of degrees. Now, one side, at one point you reach an inflection point, sure, and then it's like, yeah, actually we just have to abolish these things. But I just don't think that we're at a case, at a point, when the material conditions are deteriorating to such an extent that that sort of suicidal mad gasp for power is necessary. Here's the important, the most important part of all, though, is that even if I accept your premise, 
and I say, okay, yeah, this is fascism in buried in the Republican party. It will seek to grab the rules of the, the reins of power outside of a democratic mandate. I accept those notions. The answer to how to defeat it is still the same. Build a working class opposition. And the Democratic Party doesn't do that. What I'm saying is that whatever the Republicans do in power, once they've gerrymandered themselves into winning a a rigged election where the Supreme Court rules that, you know, the uh, contested ballots in Pennsylvania will be awarded to the Republicans. That will be a moment of great trauma for liberals. It will lead to, I would say, a significant amount of street demonstrations and violence. You would see like a George Floyd-esque rebellion. But after that died down, you would see a equilibrium return to where the exploitations of the machine are still being laundered through a, a native bourgeois belief in democracy because it will be too painful for you to, for you to, for you, the comfortable liberal who makes up the average democratic voter to do anything about it. And yeah, that's a horrible outcome. And that is something that nobody wants to see. But this is the other important part. If you do what they tell you to do about it and care about what they tell you to care about, it won't stop it from happening. Do you really think the Democratic Party will stop this from happening in any way? Do you think doing what it wants, and it does have a will, has a general desire, you can try to dissent at the margins, but there is a agenda that you're, you're working off of because you're just a voter. You don't have real influence. You're just doing a, a ritualistic thing. You can vote for them and they'll either stop it because uh, re, uh, the economy goes the right way and, uh, and the remaining split voters decide to vote for Democrats and they actually pass some sort of voters' rights bill or something. Or there's like a premature fascist uh, attempted coup because there's too many riled up hillbillies uh, and uh, militia types and it gets squashed by the FBI. The question is, if that happened, if they won and crushed the rebellion, what would you do then? Would you keep posting about it? Or would you try to actually risk your life to resist it? And I think the average American political subject in this country is too comfortable to, in the aggregate, risk anything. At the individual level, of course. But in the aggregate, where it matters. They're not going to do it. Because the people who are suffering the most, uh, the most acutely in this country are the least politically formed, the least politically uh, self-identifying, the least politically organized. And so this like MAGA movement is the closest thing we have to a alienated response to the failures of late capitalism because it's filtered through this crackpot Jeffersonian fantasy of purified capitalism. But they have no power over the top levels of their party. Not in contravention to the people who signed the checks. And honestly, 
It does make me wonder. I guess the question that, that matters the most is when you imagine that happening, when you imagine like the, the real stolen election, like Ron DeSantis militias rampaging and democracy uh, extinguished, what do you imagine happens next? I think that if you think that there is like a real violent resistance that is like sustained and coordinated, or do you think we basically go back to normal? I think that for the liberal who examines fascism and, and, and fixates on it, I think the thing they really fear is the latter. They fear that's going to happen and I'm not going to do anything. So the entire thing is just an impotent psychodrama. It doesn't mean uh, that we don't have that. It doesn't mean that politics aren't real. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you probably shouldn't as a coordinated tactic vote in some cases, specifically at the local level. But it does mean that you have to, at the very least, shed yourself of the of the emotional connotative freighting of this. Like we're all we all have like a limited emotional sort of uh, uh, imagination to, to structure politics. We have a limited number of narratives that we can sort of hold in our head to, to guide us through our life and through understanding the things that we encounter. And So the people who have the most to lose, someone asked about what about the people who have the most to lose, the people who would actually be repressed beyond what they're being repressed now. If you're a member of that group, are you afraid of just being destroyed? And if so, isn't it better to imagine a resistance to it? Instead of assuming an annihilation. Instead of assuming that, that that's a possibility. Because we're all just talking about ways to think about things. We're not talking about real stuff. Our real moment-to-moment lives are much, much closer to us, much less us hostaged to narratives that are outside of us. So the challenge we all have is how to to shade uh, our understanding of the world. I mean, I think you can assume that things are bad and getting worse, and that all we have is each other, and that any any kind of uh, mission that we all have to give that we're going to give ourselves has to be built on top of that. I don't know. I really do feel like I'm at the end of the day just uh just talking to myself, talking myself through the question of what to do with my little body in this moment in time. What what thoughts to have, what emotions to have, what emotions to connect to what experiences and concepts and symbols. Because the Alternative 
is to just react. And that's what I did for most of my adult life is I just reacted. And it was like a fucking cat chasing a laser lighter. So take it or leave it. It doesn't matter. We're all just hanging out. Uh, We're all just hanging out. We're not doing politics right now. We're not doing politics. We're not changing the world. We're not forming meaningful uh, praxis. We are hanging out and we're having sharing memories, sharing moments that we can then think back of through a certain lens. And that's, that's all we can really hope of this time spent doing this other time spent doing other things. The challenge there is to determine what you can do, what you should do, and then try to fucking do it. All right. I should stop talking now. I I probably stopped making sense like half an hour ago. It's fine. We'll regroup. We'll figure it out. Next time, we'll try to figure out what uh, movie to watch, too. Or I'm sorry, movie to watch. What book to read. Bye-bye.